0: Welcome to Centric Lab's first audio mini-series, Planetary Disregulation, Capitalism and Healthcare. From Centric Lab we are Josh and Aricelli and are joined by Guppy Bola and Rhiannon Osborne. Guppy is a strategist, researcher and expert in public health. She is also co-founder of Decolonizing Economics, which is building a solidarity economy movement rooted in racial justice. Rhiannon, is a soon to be doctor, researcher, and organizer working across access to medicines, climate justice, abolition, and mutual aid. The intention of this audio project is to discuss the links between systems and imaginations rooted in supremacy, the dysregulation of planetary systems, and the poor health outcomes being experienced by peoples who are racialized and minoritized. We also aim to dismantle the individualized health narrative propagated by Western medicine, as it has been used to blame people for their poor health, which helps propagate health injustice. As we go through the audio story, we'll be using certain linguistic baselines. First, nature and all living beings are referred to in a plural form, as we are all ecosystems. We are all plural. The Second, is the use of the letter S at the end of words such as knowledges, to signify that indigeneity is not a monolith and holds mutual cultures and multiple cultures, thoughts and knowledges. It also is inclusive of non-human knowledges. This mini-series is across four episodes. In episode one, we focused on definitions within the topic. In the second episode, we provided an introduction to the epistemologies of supremacy and how health became individualised. In the third episode, we explored how capital systems affect healthcare systems and the erasure of indigenous healing imaginations. In this fourth and final episode, we end with a focus on how right to pollute policies contribute to planetary dysregulation.
1: Welcome to chapter four, where Josh will open up with highlighting how right to pollute policies contribute to planetary dysregulation. And we'll end with Rhiannon, where she will be tracing the link between the practices of extractivism And health outcomes.
0: In short, a recognition that democracy in the UK was never seen through the lens of a representation of people but a representation of land ownership. I'm going to unpack this from an epistemological lens, then how this defines a system and how it bears out in reality. I believe it was Mark Walton from Shared Assets that turned me on to how Basically, in a bit of a glib way, the UK parliamentary system is the oldest property lobby in the world. We have the House of Lords, which is a chamber for the interests compromising of the church and noblemen. European nobility originated in the feudal system that arose in Europe during the Middle Ages. Originally knights or nobles were mounted warriors who swore allegiance to their sovereign and promised to fight for him in exchange for an allocation of land usually together with serfs living thereon. And we have the House of Commons in the UK, a chamber to represent those who tend to the shires and the boroughs, which were ultimately managed on behalf of the crown. Since the emergence of feudalism in the 5th century, an illusion of supremacy gave a small group of people the illegitimate right to dictate, this land is your land, this land is my land. The psychological premise of democracy in the UK is not founded in the rights of people, but in the rights of land ownership. That epistemology seeps through into today, where I'll give an example to demonstrate, and I'm going to focus on the housing crisis and break it apart from two angles. Firstly, if we take for a moment that the UK housing crisis is a supply-demand issue, and the government is cognizant of the negative social externalities that that causes, such as low-quality homes, evictions, homelessness, insecurity, then why does the Crown sit on approximately 287,000 acres of land? Why does it not put more pressure on house-building landowners, where, according to research by the Northeast-based Stripe Homes, there are 441,000 plots of land owned by house-builders in what's called land banking, a process of owning but choosing not to build on. Industry insiders claim that land banking does not enable the housing crisis and there are other issues such as wider economic forces and the old tropes of too much bureaucracy. However that narrative fails to acknowledge that ultimately the power is in the hands of those that make profit. Land is not for social benefit but for private control and the right to tax or seek a rent I remember being at a conference in about 2019 where a head of a major UK real estate developer said colloquially, the government can solve the housing crisis in 10 years, set up the funding to build 12 new garden cities across the country in close proximity to commercial hubs, but it won't because that may impact in the short term existing landowners who may see a devaluation or their land-owning rights impacted. It's not a question of space, it's a question of choice in governance The second is that when marking something as a crisis, you can start to own the narrative. In the UK, it's that we don't have enough homes, rather than how we live as people, and the economic distribution across the UK. By purely focusing on the requirement for homes, it influences and dictates policy and political guidance. Central government has made it clear that local authorities have targets to hit in order to do their part to solve this crisis. This creates a division between people and their fears and the perceptions of who is doing their part, i.e. is the local authority doing enough? Combined with the cuts to local government funding, authorities have to increase their revenues through modes of taxation, such as business rates, revenue, council tax, parking meters, and lastly through land disposal. This tight grip on, this almost stranglehold on local governments is often resulting them in acting against really the best interests of their electorate. It contributes to why we're seeing displacement of people from social homes, the erection of luxury residential towers in the most obtuse of places, and the constant pollution arising from construction and land erosion. Now coming back to narrative, when the narrative is we need more homes... And that becomes a central government dictation. It dominates policy. In the UK, central government, through its Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, they produce what's called the National Planning Policy Framework. And this, quote, sets out the government's planning policies for England and how these should be applied. It provides a framework within which locally prepared plans for housing and other development can be produced, end quote. Local governments and other actors interpret this framework and act upon it. In my technically untrained but experienced and critical eye, all this is, after multiple years of lobbying, is a mechanism to create homes at any cost, mostly through the private market. Whilst there are overtures to biodiversity, communities, health, well-being, inclusion, etc., these are vague intentionally lack workable definitions. And these things are later retrofitted in rather than led by. They're retrofitted into the main narrative to kind of appease our general social desire for these things. And lastly on this, when a government wants to own a narrative such as we need more homes, it places the power of one ministerial department over another. In the white western social psyche, we favour land ownership, land production and rent seeking at the top. Just think of the economic meltdown without the real estate industry. And yes, we had one from about 2008 to 2011. Many will say it continued on beyond that. We intentionally neglected to spend time understanding how habitats support society outside of capital generation. If we had thought about the requirements for a successful society, then we wouldn't have the Department for Leveling Up Homes and Communities, the Department for Health and Social Care, and the Department for Environmental, Food, and Rural Affairs as separate entities with different agendas. We would see them as one. However, in the UK, the focus on land ownership and self-interest rights dominate. This means that the ability for the NHS, or DEFRA, to set guidance that opposes the extraction of land becomes a political issue, conveyed to the public as an instrument that goes against their best interests which are more homes that ease the housing crisis. This means that we collectively accept guidance that contradicts health and well-being, communities and environmental sustainability in favour of solving the housing crisis. And this also means that guidance dictates that there are acceptable negative externalities to bear in the name of economic progress, such as the delivery of more housing. And I'd like to end with a case study about the people of Southall who have been tirelessly represented by the clean air for Southall and Hayes Community Group for years. Around the time of the global financial crisis, the UK Central Energy Network System, called National Grid, decided to sell older and redundant assets to generate cash and support everyone's mission to do their part in delivering housing. They often owned large brownfield sites in urban areas close to where demand was. In 2014... They partnered with the private sector upmarket housing developer called Barclay Group and set up a joint venture called St William Homes. One of the identified sites was a decommissioned gas works site in Southall, in West London, a few miles from Heathrow Airport. They applied to convert it into housing. However, the original application was actually rejected by the local authorities on the grounds that the vehicle based air pollution was too much for the local community to take. However, the Mayor of London's office exercised their power to challenge and review this application and brought it in-house, and they felt that it met the macro agenda of delivering homes and regenerating a relatively economically deprived area. Yet, arguably, it still failed to meet the requirements for clean air. Unsurprisingly, the Mayor of London at the time approved the application, and even more unsurprisingly, the mayor at the time was no other than the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Skip ahead four years from then, and local residents start to developing health issues as the land contained chemicals. These were identified in the environmental impact assessments. Some of them were carcinogenic. And these were being dispersed into the air and the homes that abutted the scheme. When locals complained and sought to create a halting to the development on health and well-being grounds, they were left powerless. By all accounts, the development had met the policy guidance, meaning there were safe levels of pollutants and they were not breaking the laws. As planning permission had been granted, the local authority could not interject. The rights of the owners of the land were not to be interfered with. And to this day, in 2023, a putrid gasoline-like smell sits in the air as construction continues and a community is left beaten by a system that enables the rights of capital and land over the rights of health. The political narrative and policy guidance in the UK, and many like it, come from the historic belief that those who own land have power. They have the power to pollute as policy guidance is set in the narrative of economic growth rather than narrative of social welfare, well-being, and sustainability. This is how we have guidance that dumps chemicals into local streams. Volatile organic compounds and carcinogenic metals dispersed into the air from economic activity and the erosion of land through construction. We're given the neoliberal message that it's part of a trickle-down economics that benefits us all in the long run. But to end, I'd like to quote Stephen Hilton of Schumacher College and the City Global Futures, that the only stuff that trickles down is the bad stuff.
2: Instead of talking about the kind of determinants of health. I think we can view health at the individual and the community and the global level as being stolen through extractivism and stolen mostly from minoritized peoples via systems of oppression. And I think in our understanding of health as relational, collective and ecological, we have a lot to draw from the work of Ruth Wilson-Gilmore and I would really recommend A deep dive into her new book, Abolition Geography, and her recent interview with Kelly Haynes on Movement Memos, which is a gorgeous podcast. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore describes the body as a kind of place, a time space place, a place like a home, a community, a region, a nation state, and even the global capitalist system, which, of course, all intertwine with each other in relation constantly. In her work on organised violence and organised abandonment, she describes the theft of time in the name of extractivism. Of course, her famous example is the prison industrial complex, where not only time, but the very life force of incarcerated people is stolen to feed the prison industrial complex. But she also describes how the health impacts of industries, such as the fossil fuel industry or agribusiness, steal time. They steal life and health from people through pollution, violence um, and their intersections with other extractive sy- systems for example through the criminalization of land offenders and of course as francoise verger talked about earlier with the cumulative wear and tear on the body as ruthie highlights and as many many communities and researchers and activists have spoken about this process of time theft by extractive industries um, and the state is, is cumulative and what we can do as health organizers and researchers is to trace this extractivism and to trace the theft of time and this theft of time and life and health across geographies and across communities and attempt to disrupt it in one place across time multiple extractive industries will steal health from people so we can trace how the oil company who pollutes the water collaborates with the military and the police to embody stress danger and poison into the cells of communities in the niger delta and we can trace how those same people due to the extractive nature of the energy system live in energy poverty making for example things like education a challenge and then we can follow that industry or you can you can follow anything uh, a finance a financier a trade policy and we can follow the way that it steals health from many communities across the world so if we were to follow the fossil fuel industry we could then continue to trace the extractivism to Um, The mostly black and working class communities dying from excess fossil fuel air pollution or the migrant children dying because their families can't afford to pay the fuel bills. And so their houses are full of cold and mold. Through this process, we can start to conceptualize health not just as a property of a person or a community, but in the in-between, in the relationships between each other the land, non-humans, and whether those relationships are depleting the life force of some for the capital gain of others, or whether they are nurturing our mutual flourishing. Through understanding and embracing mutual interdependence, we can see that health is relational, collective, and ecological. When we understand health as relational, we can realise that in order to analyse health in any way under racial capitalism, we must analyse whose health and life is being stolen through extractivism. Who is benefiting and what systems are they using to do it? And disrupting those systems at all places and times and growing different relations is the path to health justice. We can reclaim health as a tool for this fight against the extractive economy across all its dimensions, uplifting bodily knowledge, nurturing our interconnections, and transforming health and medicine from something based in power and supremacy to something that can be reclaimed by and for the people in a fight for a society in which we can give each other the abundant lives every single person inherently deserves.
0: So now let's dream and imagine what we need to move towards ecological healing. I'm going to do this in a slightly more sort of fast fire uh, with some ending statements from all of us. Uh, Guppy, I'd like to invite you to the microphone to go first, please.
3: Yeah, so I was thinking a bit about um, the more, I think some of the solutions that we hold around these things can often be presented or maybe interpreted as something that is like very local, very like small scale, um, and unscalable. And of course, when we think about how we need to transition from this extractive economy to one that is living um, and respects sacredness um, and deep democracy of peoples and all living beings, we need to think structurally about the the power behind the extractive, extractive economy. But there is so much that we can be doing today, um, or maybe like yesterday, <laughs> to begin this work, um, particularly around our our relationships with each other and also our relationships with ourselves and understanding ourselves. And actually, Ren and I were talking yesterday about how even just engaging at a uh, community level is uh, and, in, and within deep relationship with people in a committed relationship with people is a form of healing um, and a necessary healing for us to understand each other and ourselves. And often we engage, you know, we are perked to engage in um, some form of activism or organizing because we are seeking that healing um of this like unknown power that is defining us. Um, and it is a real source of um empowerment. So I think the first of the the first processes around ecological healing really begins in relationship uh, with each other um, and in thinking about community and self-determination and creating openness um, to discover who we can be beyond the definitions that have been given to us by others, um, and to be creative with those ideas um, and loving in those ideas as well. Uh, so it could be seen as a form of uh, democracy, but really that we have been like de-democratized de-democratize, um, and need to practice that democratic participation with each other. So models of uh, worker cooperatives or other forms of cooperative Uh, engagement or collective engagement, uh, collective housing, uh, or even just local organizing groups and making decisions together are really good ways of uh, of forming uh, a healing system around us. Um, Obviously, anything that is land-based, land-based connection, um, even the simplest forms of gardening, um, thinking about policies that enable transfers of land to not just community ownership but thinking about you know land back is one uh one thought but the idea that land back is like a process of moving ownership from one group to another but actually what it does it just mean to like let go um of the ownership relationship um and think about land in its in its own right um and its own being and having that respect and, and relationship with it um In solidarity, economic models, which we think about all the time, because it provides us with uh, a possibility of thinking about how we use our power and resources um, through the lens of positionality. So. Mutual aid might be one of those solidarity uh, economic initiatives where those with more, with greater positionality engage in organising resources and redistributing them towards marginalised communities in order to create conditions for equitable participation within um, the sort of democratic decision-making processes. Um, and of course, Chelly uh, mentioned earlier around microbial justice um, and seed sovereignty and um, and how essential it is for us to recognise that many bodies within this world have been stripped from their ancestral microbiome, and what it would take, and what is necessary for us when we think about food systems is not just access to healthy food, but is what is the DNA of the um, of my microbiome and my gut that um, requires me to actually access certain food practices and food cultures and food types um, in order to heal. Uh, my body internally and then to uh, support the um, process of removing trauma from the body through somatic practice and who has the skills um, and how is that deployed uh, within communities too so and then finally uh, reparative economic policies um, and practices which think again about who has been caused harm um, and what how should that not just moving the money and redistributing it but like how is that money moved so how do you uh, filter the sort of extractive natures of wealth um, within sort of private uh, private ownership and endowments and, and all these extractive models, uh, take it through a sort of values filter and move it into um, a place in which it could actually repair from from harms of colonial violence. Uh, so those are some of the things I've been thinking about in terms of strategies and policies.
0: That's beautiful, Guthrie just a few things there to get us going but that's uh one of the things uh since we came across you through the wonderful world of social media is that you take all these amazing ideas and we find oh my god these were already in our head and so for me to follow up I think you know you've answered so much that the the one thing that I believe towards our ecological healing I'm actually going to borrow a phrase from Indy Johar who said that one of the issues that he sees in modern Britain is a form of mental health crisis but not that which is defined by clinical issues around uh, depression and other health issues but from a social perspective the loss of micro hope and I think a lot of the system and what we've talked about today is this erasure of your independent agency to believe because there are these enormous forces that are weighing upon us that divide us and hold our imagination into one world of seeing. And that micro hope often comes in believing that your neighbor is capable and the person down the road is imaginative and the person who lives the one town over can do that task. And I think that great linking back to the belief that we can do things together, we can govern land together, we won't fall prey to what we've been told is a natural human order of supremacy, of power. I think that is our great way of healing is really believing in each other. And I would I hope we see more of that next year. And I think that's how we can heal is to have the belief uh, in each other and in our neighbors that we can create and we will create, but we need to believe in each other to do it. I'm gonna ask Rhiannon now for her uh, closing thoughts uh, towards ecological healing.
2: Yeah, um, thank you so much for all of your thoughts so far. And um, yeah, I think there's so much to do for all of us is to, to try and live our lives the best we can with the knowledge that like, my well-being and my health is the health of my neighbours and it is the health of the land. And what does it mean to move through the world attempting at least to embody that, um, even in conditions which are not really conducive to it. Um, but I think the thing that I wanted to end on was the fact that there is so much organizing potential and power in health justice as a tool to disrupt extractivism. Um, So, for example, the work Centric Labs does using um, health and data evidence to support community campaigns, um, but also health as a way to connect with and reach people and communicate with people um, and um, to facilitate organizing infrastructure and practice. And there is so much really liberatory potential in a radical, interdependent understanding of health, which views it as relational, collective, political and ecological. And I think one thing to say is that this understanding of health is already present and being used, even if it's not explicitly called health. The work is already being done in a thousand different places from um, the solidarity economy movement to disability justice spaces to abolitionist organizing and health and the words health and medicine have rejected this work for so long, often because it involves giving up some of the class and political power of medical professionals, um, doctors in particular, and acknowledging their complicity in systems of violence. Um, And when it comes to health justice organising, I think there's so much to be learned from abolitionist scholarship and practice of holding both the really radical vision of what would it mean for everyone to be healthy, what would it mean to... um, to be able to for everyone to take care of each other what would it mean to build not towards um kind of medicine for disease but a medicinal society where our communities our services everything is geared towards life and flourishing and i think we have so much to learn from abolitionist organizers and scholarship of holding that and at the same time, holding that, what does it mean to fight systems of violence now and keep people alive now, while we are organising towards that future? And how can we both create pockets of future and also live our lives in deep solidarity with those most impacted by this system and fighting, yeah, and fighting violence as we see it today? And I think that the, yeah, the commitment to health justice is a commitment to a lot of organising um, and being yeah being committed to both that radical vision of what we've been told about health and and um yeah what we've been told about health is a lie and we can build something so much better and at the same time recognising that we need to attempt to um reduce the harm of today at the same time
1: um dope um so i my last um or ending thoughts is a shout out to the zapatistas who have been doing the work for over 40 years um so oftentimes we talk about what comes next without remembering what has come before us and who we are whose shoulders we are we are standing on um they have a saying called buen vivir which often gets (laughs) badly translated from Spanish and then to English, but it means life in wellness or life in healing. Um, And they organize their society with healing as a root. So governance structures, the habitat ecology, their imaginations, their culture is all around healing. And what's beautiful about the Zapatistas is that they have already Tested in working models for how to do this. They are very much willing teachers. Um, so, I guess it's also if we are willing listeners and being able to platform communities or scholars um, that have already done these models, have already generated these models, and platform them in the work that we are doing.
0: We did it. Guppy, Rihanna, come off mic. We did it. Congrats. Well uh, well done for your chats. Um, I'm going to include this in the final edit because it's always good to have a little bit of life and human nature in (laughs) it. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. This is us as human beings. Uh, We will be continuing having these chats. Uh, We're going to have links to all of our profiles in the audio so you can... And resources. And the resources of everything that we've mentioned so you can delve in because there is a wealth of knowledge here and we hope that we've imparted some to you and you will also impart some to us going forward. Um, I think Araceli has one more thing to say.
1: Yes. I think the next special issue (laughs) should be genetics, genetic imagination, supremacy and racism. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we, we reunite the gnomes and the tree.
0: With <laughs> <laughs> the avoidance of Dad I'm the tree in this
1: conversation. Um, for, for that discussion.
0: Cool. Watch this space for the next episode. We'll see you guys soon. Bye. See you soon.